Good morning. Great to see all of you. I want to invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible in front with you, you can grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. Uh, those of you at home, go grab a Bible or open your phone up. Hopefully you have a good Bible app. So Romans chapter 8. Um, <clears throat> it'll be a little while before we get to it, so just, just hold it open to that. Uh, we are in the seventh week of a series called The Room of Marvels, which is a series on foundational biblical doctrines. And so we've been talking throughout this series how we need to have our foundations, our, our strength in our foundations, because our foundations, a lot of times, wherever we go in the world, they're pretty much being attacked. And uh, there's a whole different way of looking at the world, and, and we need to be solid on, on those. So today we're looking at the doctrine of salvation. And uh, kind of a crazy sermon, it's a 10-point sermon. We're going to look at 10 doctrines that are related to the doctrine of salvation. And one of the realities is that our understanding of salvation is oftentimes very thin, uh, very superficial. We have some understanding about some aspects of it, but I don't think usually in the church today we have the depth of everything that, not everything, but so much more that we can know. And, and the takeaway of today's sermon is worship. It's, it's to understand the complexities, the, the breadth, the beauty of our salvation so that we will live a life of worship. That's what we're going to be, where we're going on this. So you're going to have to buckle your seat if you're taking notes. Uh, you'll be able to keep up. Um, sometimes I won't be able to keep up because I don't have my script in front of me. I left it at home. So it's really bad for the person doing the, uh, <laughs> the slides because I'm all over the place sometimes. But um, I've I've tried with the outline uh, to recreate it, so we're, we're going to go from there. So um, let's pray. We're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. John chapter, 1 John chapter 5 is where this prayer uh, originates from, or uh, it's based on 1 John chapter 5. So please join me in this prayer. Heavenly Father, we find our hope and our salvation in you alone. While the kingdom of this world will crumble, yours will stand firm forever. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding as we look to your word. Open our eyes to see your truth. Strengthen our faith. Lead us to walk in your grace. Give us confidence in your promises and the fullness of life with you. Father, we thank you that we have fullness of life with you and that our life with you is eternal because of our salvation. And Father, we, we celebrate that, we, we live in light of that, and right now we are, we're really reeling, we're, we're hurting because one of our family members here um, has gone to be with you. And so we pray for Serena's family, for Nathan, her husband, for her three young children, for family, friends, for her small group that has walked through this cancer with her, um, her friends. Father, we pray that you would encourage them, and as we celebrate her life tomorrow, I pray, Father, that we would uh, bring glory to you, and um, there would be a lot of comfort in remembering uh, Serena. We thank you, Father. We thank you that she's with you. We thank you that all of us who know you personally can be with you forever and ever, experiencing your love, seeing you face to face, um, experiencing uh, eternity with you in the new heaven and the new earth. We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 
We're looking at 10 doctrines about salvation as we do every week. For those of you who might be brand new with us uh, online or uh, here today, we have been following along in the basic outline of a book called Emblems of the Infinite King. Uh, and this, this book is a book of systematic theology for uh, age 10 to adult. And so uh, we'll be listening to various portions from it, and we have an assignment in the Sermon Application Guide for some reading each week in that. And so let's, let's listen to the introduction to the chapter on, uh, I think specifically chapter 6 on the doctrine of salvation. Chapter 6, The Gavel Key, The Doctrine of Salvation. Turning the key causes a great wind to blow out of the east that drives all the sand, rocks, and hills away. A calm sets in. Starlight breaking through the night sky overhead dimly shines on a narrow path that leads to an even narrower gate. Passing through it, you find a sea of crystal clear glass on the other side. And on the far shoreline sits a majestic emerald colored throne surrounded by 24 smaller thrones. As you strain to see the beautiful sight across the sea, something catches your eye. On the center throne sits what seems to be a large book or scroll of some kind. Seeing it floods you with dread and hope at the same time. You cringe, weep, and laugh simultaneously. Somehow you know this book is unlike any other book. It reads you, not the other way around. But there is a reason a sea separates you from the throne and the book. No matter how much you want to read its words, you know you can never open its pages. Tears overcome you as you feel the weight of your unworthiness. And while everything you've always wanted lies on the throne across the sea, it might as well be 10,000 miles away. But that's when you hear it coming from the far shore something strange, something odd, like the mixture of a lion's roar and a sheep's bleat. That doesn't do the sound justice. It's more beautiful than that. Hearing it fills you with your favorite feelings. It comforts your soul like hot chocolate in a snowstorm and floods your heart with eager anticipation like sunrise on Christmas morning. And then the sound stops. You would be happy to hear that beautiful, mysterious sound forever. You want nothing more than to hear that lion and lamb speak again. But all you hear now is silence until that wise, familiar voice whispers to you once again. All right, so what is essential to know about salvation, 10 things. Each one of these doctrines within the doctrine of salvation is gonna have a metaphor that goes along with it in the book. There's some great illustrations, emblems representing each one of these. So if you have the book, hopefully you'll get a chance to look at those today. Uh, but the first thing that we need to know is the hand of election, the hand of election. In the emblems book, it, it explains election a little bit there. It says, election is the king's solid, sure, unbreakable plan to save a people for himself and for his glory. That really gives us the, 
the purpose of election in the Bible. It's his plan. It's an unbreakable plan to save his people for himself. The Bible, when it speaks about our salvation, begins in eternity past. Uh, we saw this when we were doing the series on, first, on John chapter 1 during Advent. It talks about the Word who was there at the beginning and was with God and was God and the plans that were set in eternity past and how in Scripture salvation is spoken of as something that happens before, when I say eternity past, before the earth was created, before the universe was created, God was already making plans. The word election means choice. It means choosing. And it's in the choices that God was making in eternity past. He was making certain things that were going to happen. So Jesus speaks of it in, um, in interesting terms. Uh, this is where the metaphor of the hand comes from. Jesus said, my sheep, speaking of those who follow him, my sheep will follow my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's words of assurance, but there's also words of election and choosing and what God has done to bring about our salvation. The Apostle Paul uh, speaks of election with using the word election in Ephesians chapter 1. If I could have that next slide. He says, for he chose us, that's election, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Most of Ephesians chapter 1 deals with this whole idea of God's plans in the past and the impact. But then he drives it home towards the end of that passage in verse 13, which by the way, uh, th that's all like one in, in the original language, one sentence that just goes on and on and on and on and builds and builds and builds. And he builds towards this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession to the praise of his glory. There again is that hand, there is that protection. He says, you were chosen before the creation of the world. And because you were chosen, you were given the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? It's like a seal. It's like a guarantee when you receive the Holy Spirit that God will accomplish in you. You will make it to the end to the praise of his glory. He gives assurance through that. So the Apostle Paul also in Romans chapter 8, so if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 28, a very familiar passage where it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. All right, very assuring words, right? Why can we believe these assuring words? The next verse tells us, for those God foreknew, that's language of election, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, this is not talking about this idea, you know, of predestination, that things are determined, that God determines. He says, he says because God chose you and knew you with that kind of depth of knowing, like Jesus talked about in that passage, where I know them, because God chose you, he predestined that you will make it to the end. You will be conformed to the image of his son. So the assurances of Romans 8.28, which are great assurances, are based on the work that God does. Not the work that we do, not on our own performance. It's based on the work that God does on our behalf. So 
Um, caution. Uh, I want to give you a few cautions. Before I give you cautions, let me give you an idea here. Uh, in the Bible, and for centuries, Christians have debated. And if you've been around the church for a while, you know what the debate is that I'm talking about. Christians have debated whether what's primary is our free will, our choice of God, or is it God choosing us in eternity past? All right, and so there are two major schools of thought. I'm not going to go into it, but there's two major schools of thought on this. I'm going to tell you which one you should believe in, but I am going to say this. Um, there, there, there are a couple things. One is theologians have often talked about these two strains of Scripture. It seems to be personal, personal choice that you need to make, God's choice of you. These seem to be separate, but what is veiled for us is where they come together. It's almost like they look like parallel lines, but they're not. Out there beyond the veil, they actually come together. Somehow God holds together our personal choice and his choices, and there's, there's a certain mystery to that. But I want to give you a caution because as American Christians, we tend to skew towards the free will side. And I'm not telling you you shouldn't believe the free will side. I'm just telling you, caution if that's what you tend to go to. All right, so here, here we go. Number one, keep God's work and plans at the center because that's where God keeps it. When, when it says in the Bible that we're saved by grace and it's not our works, you have to understand, if your faith is all about you making a choice and you investigating and you looking at everything and coming to a conclusion, that sounds a little bit like works. There's a little bit of works mixed in there. God keeps the emphasis, the Bible keeps the emphasis on God. Keep Him at the center. So whatever you wind up, wherever you wind up in those debates... Always lean over towards the, the sovereignty of God. And here's, here's the reason why. Um, one of the reasons why is because, um, not only because that's where the scripture is, but because as soon as it starts skewing towards me, my performance and my choices and my having enough faith and my being faithful and my getting up every morning and saying, I'm going to follow God today, the more it goes in that direction, the more it becomes about performance. And your performance will fail you, guaranteed. Your performance will fail you. And you will live in a kind of a, a, I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure. But the Bible puts the emphasis on God's performance, His Spirit sealing you, Him completing the work that He's begun in you. That is where the emphasis is in Scripture. And that gives us confidence to move forward in Him rather than constantly wondering, oh my gosh, am I still loved? Am I still cared for by God? Uh, does He? And, and you may not struggle with that. You may say, well, I'm on the free will side and I, don't, I know that I'm loved by God. Well, maybe you don't take seriously enough your sin. <laughs> so you're kind of like, well, you know, God is just going to, you know, just look the other way because we all sin or whatever. That's not the way that God does it. It's really serious stuff for him. So put the emphasis on God because that's where the, the scripture puts it. Um, uh, secondly, free will is overrated. L let, me, let me explain what I mean. In the Bible, uh, right at the beginning of the story, God chooses Abraham and he chooses through Abraham a people, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Uh, we hear about Abraham at the very end of Genesis chapter 11, it's the first time we're introduced to him. Genesis 12:1. God calls him. God says, I want you to go, I want you to leave your family, and I'm going to send you to a land. I don't even tell him where the land is, but I'm going to bless you, and you're going to have this large family that I'm going to bless you so that you then can be a blessing to the whole world. 
We find out later in the story in the Old Testament that Abraham, at the time of his calling, was an idol worshiper. He wasn't seeking God. It wasn't like God looked around the earth and, uh, and tried to decide who's like the best person here or who is seeking me in, in a great way. We don't know everything that was going on with Abraham, but we know he was worshiping idols at that point. It was God's choice. God chose him. God chose Israel in order to bless the whole world. Come to Jesus and his disciples. Jesus literally says this about his disciples. He says, looks at them. He says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I mean, those, those are his words. I chose you, you didn't choose me. Free will is overrated. It's overrated because it's, it, 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 there are so many things in our lives that have nothing to do with free will. Where you were born, what family you were born into, uh, what social economic class you were born into, what race you were born into, what ethnicity you were born into. Do you think, do you think for a moment that you have, that a, a, a child being born in Saudi Arabia today has as much opportunity to come into a saving faith in Jesus Christ as you do being born in America? They don't. And, and you can say, well, it's just, I, guess, I guess it's just a roll of the dice. The Bible says, no, it's not a roll of the dice. God is sovereign. All of it, the whole, the whole thing is part of his big plan. It all works together for the good of those who are his. All right, so there are things that we can't understand. There, it's a mystery. Like I said, there's, there's that veil. There is a mystery. But if you overdo free will, it will come and bite you because the reality is there is so much in your life that you don't get to determine. There's, you, can, you can take certain opportunities, but there are limitations on you that are constantly, constantly out there. And so the Bible... To me, in the end, it's, it's, it's oftentimes, am I going to trust God or am I going to trust my own conception of how it should be? Who am I going to trust? If you're too strong on the free will side, what happens is you eventually start questioning God and shaking your fist at him because it's about what you think, not about what God, what God thinks. So free will is overrated. And then the last one is personal responsibility and mission are never trumped by election. So wherever you land on this thing, say you, you land on the election side or skew a little bit in that direction, it never takes away personal responsibility because personal responsibility is there in Scripture. We're going to see it in some of these passages. We just don't know where it meets. But what we know is you can't say, well, I don't need to share Christ with this person because God, God's got it from before the creation of time. No, nope, it's not how it works. It's a mystery, but it's not how it works. Well, I, I, don't, you know, I don't need to uh, get up in the morning and say, I'm going to live for Christ today. No, actually, you do, <laughs> because you're in a fight, and you better recognize that you're in a fight, and you better fight, because God is, yes, he has you in the palm of his hands, but he expects you to get up in the morning and fight, and he uses that kind of language over and over and over again. So there is personal responsibility. There is mission on our life, wherever you end up on this whole thing. All right, first thing is the hand of election that we need to know. What else do we need to know about, uh, about our salvation? It's the cross of atonement. So that's a symbol that we're, we're used to. Um, but in Romans 3, 25, it says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You have to, 
have a little bit of sense of the whole Old Testament and the sacrifices that took place, the sacrifice of animals. John the Baptist looking at Jesus and said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Guess what? Because he's going to die like a lamb in sacrifice. His blood, literal blood, is going to be shed for us. And that's talking about atonement. Atonement um, is about making amends and setting things right. That's what atonement is about. And it's not just making amends and setting things right. It's more than that. It's a substitutionary uh, atoning sacrifice. So um, Jesus dies, not just like, I'm going to die because you guys sin. No, he dies in our place. We have to understand that. He dies in our place. We're the ones who should be experiencing the cross. We're the ones who should be experiencing what the scripture speaks of as the wrath of God against sin, his justice, his perfect justice. Now, wrath, don't think of us wrath, ah, you know, crazy, out of control. God's wrath is in control. It is perfect justice. We should be experiencing it. But because he is our substitute, he dies in our place to make amends and to make things right. All right, what else? Do we need to know about uh, salvation? We need to know about the mountain of God's gospel call. You see, it's not enough. It's not enough to know that Jesus died for our sins. God calls us so that we can then respond. And so the scripture talks about how our, our God's call on us. But you are a chosen people. Okay, this is the Apostle Peter writing a letter to a group of churches. So he's talking to them as Christians. He's talking to us as well. Everything that he says here is to us as well. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Just like the Old Testament, the people of Israel were a priesthood. They had priests, but they were also a priesthood. They represented God to the nations, and they represented the nations to God. Okay, so we are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. That's the, the mountain of God's call. God calls us. Now, the problem in Scripture is that we have hard hearts. Pastor John talked about it last week uh, in his sermon. Um, the Bible also says that we take, our default position is we take the truth of God, what we can know about God, and we suppress it. We, 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 we hide it. We, we ignore it. We don't even want to know. We, we argue against it. We take it and we suppress the truth of God. So we need something more in order to be saved. And what we need is the next picture, which is the heart of regeneration. And the prophets spoke of this new heart that God would, um, would give us. So we can go to the next slide. I moved kind of fast through that one. Uh, the heart of regeneration. So the Apostle Paul writes, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. Set his seal. There we go again. Set his seal of ownership on us. He's got us in his hand. And he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So this is very similar to the Ephesians passage, but it's emphasized spirits in our hearts. It's why we can, we can receive the call because his spirit it softens our hearts, gives us new hearts instead of the hearts of stone that the prophets talked about. It has come that these new hearts would be given to us through Christ. All right, what else do we need to know? We need to know about the gavel of justification. The gavel of justification. If I could have the next slide. 
Here's how Paul describes it in Romans 3. But you, apart from the law, uh, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God. Okay, so the rightness, just it's more than that, but just take that idea, the rightness of God. The rightness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This rightness of God is given, given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace. Now, this word justified is the same word here, okay? It's just in English, you use a different word for the different verb, or when you put it into a verb like this. But it's like, and all you are, have been made right in the way that God is right. You have been justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So the idea is that in our uh, salvation, uh, there is this gavel of justification. It's like a court scene, and, and a lot of the word is, a lot of the wording around this sort of thing has to do with the law courts. That's the, the major symbol. That's why they use the gavel as a symbol. It's like, not guilty. We're declared not guilty. So there's a declaration of our guilt. Why? Because Christ stood in our place. But it's more than that. And this passage gets that. We are also given the rightness of God. We're given the righteousness of God. Um, and so it's not just that we're declared, but we are given it's credited to our account. It's imputed into us. And so let's watch uh, another section from, that goes into this from the Emblems book. The Gavel of Justification. You stand on the high judge's gavel of justification. If you have a new heart, you have a new hope. You no longer stand under God's just judgment. You stand free. You no longer stand on the enemy's side of the battlefield. You stand on his side with the righteous warrior king who will deal once and for all with the lawless rebels. God does this by declaration. Like a judge, he announces before all hearers that sinners who place their faith in him are no longer guilty. They are righteous before his holy and pure eyes. How is this so? How can lifetime rebels become full-time saints? Because the other than king, is powerful enough to credit what your world's theologians call impute, the death killer's righteousness and holiness to his faith-filled ones. Based on Christ's work, you can trade your sins for his righteousness. Notice how steep the price he paid for your justification, though. God doesn't just sweep his hatred of sin and wrath against sinners under the cosmic rug of the universe. No, for the faith-filled, he pours it out on his son. The justification of sinners cost the king his son. But as you know, death could not hold him. That is why he is the death killer and why he did what he did. The death killer died to take your sins to the grave and to die your death in your place so that you might receive the gift of his righteousness and his never ending rewards. If you recognize what the king's holiness demands and just how deep his love for you is, step off the gavel. 
With your head hung low and a lump in your throat, you take another step. Almost instantly, you find yourself at the entry of a narrow bridge. All right, we'll look at the bridge in a moment, but I do want to add a little thing. There is, um, there's kind of a bit of a movement out there that speaks against what we're talking about in this part right here. And they um, uh, tr- trying to, I mean, they're, they're believers, but they're trying to, to do something. They say something like, this whole idea is cosmic child abuse, that God would pour his wrath on his own son. Um, I don't get it because I've heard the discussions. I've read the stuff that they write. And I'm like, I think most 10-year-olds in our church could explain why that's not cosmic child abuse. So I'm a, I'm a little bit at a loss for that kind of thinking. Um, and so just, just keep your, your ears and eyes open for it. And if you've been exposed to it, um, just, just ask yourself some simple, simple questions. Or ask your 10-year-old. I think they'll be able to explain to you why it's not cosmic child abuse, all right? So let's move on. Um, What else do we need to know about uh, our salvation? Number six, the bridge of reconciliation. The bridge of reconciliation. Now Now we're in some familiar territory. Because in our tradition, if you've grown up in this kind of tradition that we're a part of this larger Protestant evangelical tradition, um, uh, you you understand, you, 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 un, you speak in these terms. When we talk in our tradition about the need for people to have a personal relationship with Christ, that's the doctrine of reconciliation. I don't want to take anything away from it because the doctrine of reconciliation is huge and it is a great touch point with our culture, okay? Great, great touch point. People can understand the idea of having a personal relationship with Christ maybe a little easier than they can understand the whole idea of God's election, right? So I get that we put the emphasis there, but sometimes we just stay there. And I want to just challenge you to understand. I mean, we've looked at what? Five different aspects. We're going to look at four more after this one of salvation. There is more to salvation than having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it is important, so I'm not taking away from it. We need reconciliation. We need reconciliation. Uh, Let's have the passage from Colossians up here, because this is one of the great places where it talks about it. So Paul says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds, and by the way, they alienated from God. It's true. You were enemies in your mind. You were an enemy of God. Other passages don't say you were enemies. You were God's enemies. It's, it's a two-way street. You were God's enemies because you turned your back and you rebelled and you decided to be your own God. That is, that is um, that's cosmic treason. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So God takes that seriously because of the results of that especially. But we were enemy, you were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now... He has reconciled, there's reconciliation, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight and without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith. There's the, by the way, the free will part. See, we have a responsibility if you continue in your faith. So we need reconciliation. Can I have the next screen? We need reconciliation because we are enemies of God and alienated from him by our sin. That part right there is oftentimes missing in presentations of the gospel today. We're like, you need a relationship with Jesus. Isn't this wonderful? He can be your best friend. Why don't we just have a relationship with Jesus? Why did he have to die? Because we were alienated from God because of our sin. We were alienated from God. We were enemies of God 
because of our evil behavior. Understand the why of reconciliation. As you explain it to your kids, as you explain it to a friend who you're trying to point towards Jesus and what he can experience in Jesus or what she can experience in Jesus, don't leave this out. We are enemies of God and we need to be reconciled to God. That's why we need a personal relationship with him. Number seven, what else do we need to understand about salvation? We need to understand the tree of adoption, the tree of adoption. So we're back to chapter 8, verse 15, where it says, the spirit, well, I'll just read it from there. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Really important, the word sonship there. It says sonship because in that culture, the firstborn is the one who receives the majority of the inheritance. And so in scripture, when it says you were brought to your adoption to sonship. It's talking about men and women, not just men. Men and women, to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, which is like dad, father. We have that kind of relationship with God because of our adoption to sonship. The Spirit himself testifies with the Spirit, uh, with our spirit, that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. We're going to inherit. Heirs of God co-heirs with Christ, almost like we're brothers with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, there's the if again, in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. All right, an adoption. We are, we are adopted into God's family. Next week, we're going to go into some depth on the doctrine of the church and um, come to an understanding how and how without the church, you would have nothing. All right. Without the church, historically and in its present form, you would have literally nothing. Just one little example. The Bible you hold in your hand. You wouldn't have that if Christians, the church meaning Christians, had not gathered texts, gone over them with a fine-tooth comb, um, translated it into language, bound the text so that you have it right there at your fingertips. That's God's people throughout history and helped you understand what it means. All right. there, there, there is, there's a saying that goes, there is no salvation apart from the church. At least in that sense, there is no salvation apart from the people of God and what they did so that you could come to the point where you could know God and what Jesus did for you. All right, so the adoption. Um, the eighth thing that we need to know about our salvation is the chain of union. Here's another place that is familiar to us in our tradition but we don't get the fullness of it most of the time. Uh, in other words, we know about union with Christ because the Bible speaks of union with Christ in two ways. It speaks of the union we have with Christ. Um, in, uh, we have a union in Christ in that Jesus comes into our lives. So we are, we're familiar with, and it's, again, part of our tradition. This, you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How do you do that? You invite Jesus into your life or you invite Jesus into your heart. That's oftentimes how we explain it to our kids. You invite him into your life, you invite him into your heart. And the Bible uses that terminology. We become united with Christ because he comes and lives in us. But that's only half the story, and it's actually a smaller part of the story. The other part of the story is that we go into Christ. That Christ's experience, we get enveloped into Christ's experiences in mysterious ways. But we are in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is the one that describes Christians, and the Apostle Paul for sure, more than any other phrase. We are in Christ. 
That's the way to describe who we are. We are in him. And so the Apostle Paul, when he talks about baptism, for example, he speaks of it in this way. In the verses before this, he talks about baptism. And then he explains, for if we have been united with him in death, as is pictured through baptism, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, it's our union with Christ that we are united with him on the cross. We die to our sin. And we gain a new life like his resurrection because we have union with Christ. Um, The next thing that we need to know, number nine, are the stairs of sanctification. The stairs of sanctification. We oftentimes think of sanctification, well, sanctification means being made holy or holiness. If you're sanctified, you're a holy one. Uh, we're, We're called holy ones in Scripture. You're sanctified, you're holy ones. But we oftentimes think of sanctification as something that happens after justification. So we're made right with God. We receive the righteousness of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. And then sanctification means now I have to grow. I have to become a better person. I have to do what Jesus said, right? That's how we think about it. It's not the full picture. It's not the biblical picture. Sanctification is part of our salvation. In fact, sanctification is first about being made holy being made holy. Uh, This is how Paul describes it. Get the tenses here. You were, as believers, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were made holy in Christ through your union with Christ. You were made holy. Now, it is also a process. It's also a bringing into reality my thinking, my speaking, my behaviors, bringing that in line with this declaration and this imputation that God has given us, the righteousness of God that still has to happen uh, in in our lives. Um, Ephesians 4 speaks of it in this way. It says, that, however, is not the way of life you learn. So the Apostle Paul is talking about you... You were discipled in a very particular way of life. What what were you taught? Well, here it is. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, when you were just seeking yourself, you were seeking your pleasure, you were seeking what's best for you, not what God wants for you. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And to be made new, which is something that God does in us, in the attitude of your minds, and, because it's passive, it's not something I do, and to put on the new self. Well, how does this happen? Here's the process. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So I had a conversation with a college-age student yesterday, and we were talking about several things, and one of the things that he brought up, he says, man, it's like, it's like I'm dealing with a sin in my life, and as soon as I feel like I'm starting to like, conquer that sin, something else pops up. I said, it's like whack-a-mole, isn't it? He goes, yes, yeah, exactly what it's like. I said, yeah, whack-a-mole. And he goes, well, well it's like, <coughs> I don't know what picture he had in his mind, but he said, yeah, when, like, he didn't say it, but this is what he was saying. When does this end? Like, when am I going to beat this things and all these things? When, when am I going to stop this fight with sin? And I said, I'm really sorry, but it's not going to end. 
It's, it's, it's going to continue on. And for those of you who have gone through our story of God or, or just, you know, know some theology, you know, one of the primary teachings um, of New Testament theology, theology in the New Testament is the already and the not yet. So Jesus comes, he brings his kingdom, and he brings all kinds of possibilities because of his kingdom. But he is returning, and that's when the kingdom will come in fullness. That's when we're going to be completely renewed. That's where the Apostle Paul says, the work that has begun in you will be completed at that point. It will be completed, all right? But in, the, in between time, we live in this in-between time, the already and the not yet, and we struggle. I said, it's not going to end. And then we talked about what we talk here about at Five Oaks, which is what's the process so that it's not just we're living in whack-a-mole. Because Christianity is not about just dealing with sins. You know, I just got to be better and better and better. It's a relationship with God. It really is a relationship with God. And so I talked to him about our, you know, our process, what we call, not our process, but we call Connect Deep and Impact, if I can have the next slide up here. Um, and so there are spiritual disciplines, practices that God gives us so that we can cooperate with the work of the Spirit in our lives, right? And this is how we talk about it, but there's a million ways of talking about this. There's just one way of, of kind of giving it some, um, a framework that can help us tap into it a little bit better. So he, this, this has to do with our life with each other. I said to him, you know, you have life with other believers, and, and God is calling you to worship together like we are now and to fellowship together like we do in our small groups, or, but in other relationships as well, to, to fellowship with one another and then to steward. Your, your life is not about just whack-a-mole with sin. It's about stewarding the, the money God gave you, the, the, the gifts that God gave you, the time that God gave you serving the body of Christ, being connected with the body of Christ. It's not whack-a-mole. It's an active life that God is calling us to. And while he's doing that, we're cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's like God is bringing the wind and we're raising the sail. That's what we're doing. We're just raising the sail. That's what we're doing. We connect. I said, but it's not just about what you do with other believers. It's about your private or personal world as well. And so you deepen your relationship with Christ through prayer and scripture and daily learning more and more to trust God enough to surrender your life to him, to his will. And then it's not just about life with church and life alone with God. It's also about our life in the world. We're called to impact the world for Christ, to take the gospel, to evangelize the world, to take the gospel to the world. We're called to live lives of compassion and justice, to care about the poor and the needy and the powerless. We're called to that, to be active in that, and to missions, to live out God's mission into the world. That's his calling. So it's not, again, whack-a-mole. It's about a life. And, and I said, if you're doing these things, are you not going to struggle? You're going to struggle with sin. But your focus isn't going to be constantly on, oh, the sin in my life, the sin in my life, the things that I have. To... No, do these things. It will shape you more into the image of Christ, and it will put your focus where it needs to be instead of on yourself. One of the worst things is guilty Christians who are walking around all the time thinking about their sin and not getting busy in a relationship with God, a relationship with other believers, where you're honest with each other and you're, you're serving each other and having fun together and fellowshipping together and you're together going out into the world and impacting the world for Jesus. All right, one last thing. It's the crown of glorification. This is one of the ones that's the hardest for us to really understand. The younger you are, the more difficult it is to understand this. Um, only th thing I want to say is, um, this is going to be talking, we're going to watch the last uh, thing from Emblems. 
But this is going to be talking about a scene from the book of Revelation. A lot of what we've heard is like a retelling of the Revelation story. And so the scene where the saints come and they have crowns that they've been given to them by God and they bring those crowns and instead of glorying in the crown that they have received, they place their crown before God for his glory. And in some ways, I think there's, for all of us, we don't, we don't know what that means, but try to think of it in this, in this way. Try to think of people that you glorify in your mind. Try to think of that sports team. Think of, think of your favorite team winning the Super Bowl and the whole celebration. Imagine being on the field when your team wins the Super Bowl or whatever, the World Cup soccer, right? Um, you know, what, whatever it is, the World Series, being on the field with them and glorifying with them. And maybe you have a ribbon from your first place winning at your uh, high school track meet and you, you go, I mean, I, this is so big, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm just glorifying in what's happening here. Or maybe you're not into sports. Maybe it's a musician or a celebrity that you absolutely go gaga over. There's a day when we're going to go gaga over God <laughs> in deeper ways than we can even begin to imagine. So imagine that as you're listening to this. The crown of glorification. Above you is the crown of glorification. It awaits all climbers at the end of their climb. The king makes one for each of his followers. They reflect all the true, good, and beautiful things his citizens have done as his ambassadors. Yet even the most elegant and regal crown cannot compare to the king's crown. This is why when you get closer to the throne, you will see that his people are more excited about the king than what lies ahead for them. That is why there is a pile of crowns lying in front of the center throne. His people's greatest delight is to throw their crowns before their true king. Ambassadors can see their king for who he really is only one truly worthy of glory. Think of yourself. What will you want to do when you come face to face with the lion who is the lamb? When you meet the one who sings the song of your heart, the only one who can open the scroll for you and for the world. And with a rush of wind and a wave of water, the stairs are gone and you find yourself back on the far side of the sea. Your heart sinks because everything you've seen seems to be lost to the crystal waters in front of you. Do you want to hear the worthy one again? Do you want everything you've just seen? Do you want to see the lion and the lamb make everything right? We'll turn the key and open the lock. We begin our worship of response to the salvation that God has brought to us by remembering the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Christ who took the bread of Passover, being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He took the, lamb, the, the bread of Passover and he said, this is my body, broken instead of you. Let's eat together. And he said, in my blood, we have a new agreement, a brand new covenant. 
and it is for the remission of your sins. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you. We want to glorify you. We want our lives to be more and more focused on glorifying you. We thank you that we have been glorified in you, that we have been made right in you, that we have been made holy in you, that you have prepared our hearts to hear your truth. You've called us to your truth. You've planned this all out, that we would be a part of your life before the very creation of the world. We rejoice in that. Help us to live in that reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.